0: text this morning comes from Exodus uh, chapter 1 and 2, so you'll be turning there in your Bible. If you're using a pew Bible that begins on page 45. Uh, these past two weeks, my family and I have been away for a week of vacation and then a week of study. I want, I want to thank those of you who are basketball fans in the middle of the tournament who uh, sent us uh, emails about Davidson and their great performance. Our... Uh, alma mater. We were excited about that. I, I was a little concerned this morning, woke up, and before my children were supposed to be up, I could hear floating down from the end of the hallway the Carolina fight song from my daughter singing that. I don't know where the wires crossed. She's supposed to be rooting for Davidson, but she must have gotten confused somewhere in there. Uh, this morning, we're, we're starting a new series, uh, and this time in, in the book of Exodus. In the past couple of weeks, as we were gone, um, Camper and, and Ben wrapped up our series in the book of, A- of Acts, and thanks to them for preaching these past two weeks. But this week we're starting the book of Exodus, uh, and that that sounds sort of strangely ominous to some of you, and I, and I know that. And we're going to talk about that Exodus. You can you can hear Charlton Heston's voice in, in the background. Uh, as we get ready to do that we, this morning, is be by way of introduction to the series, we'll be looking at chapters one and two. Before we read, let's let's pray together, and then we'll we'll come together to God's word. Let's pray. Father, this morning we do in fact look to You. We thank You that You have not left us to wonder what kind of God You are and how it is that we might grow in the knowledge of You and how we might be in relationship with You. But You have spoken to us in Your Word that we might know all that we need for life and godliness. You've revealed Yourself to us throughout Scripture and certainly here in the book of Exodus. Would You open it up to us this morning? Would You speak Your Word to us and open our hearts to hear You? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus, begins in chapter 1, we're going to read through chapter 2, verse 22. And this is a long section. We are in the, we're jumping into a story. It is a story. Some that, One that might be familiar to some of you and less so to others, so uh, feel free to read along. But listen to this story that begins here in chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were seventy persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of God were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. The people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and while her young women walked beside the river, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses. Because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us?
1: Do you mean to kill
0: me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid, and he thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Okay, these first two chapters of Exodus that, that take us into this story, and it, and it is a story, and in the course of Scripture, a very significant story for the people of God. Um, and so this morning, we're just going to look at three things about this, about this uh, story as as way of introduction for this series on Exodus, and then, then we'll have a couple points of application at the end. But here are the three things we're going to see this morning. that This story, the story of Exodus, is the story that begins in the middle. And it's a story of pain and suffering. And it's a story of deliverance and freedom. Okay, those three things about this story. First, it's a story that begins in the middle. Um, uh, If you remember your high school English classes and the phrase, in medias res, in in the middle of things, okay, you know. It's a literary term for stories that pick up right in the middle. And that's what's happening here. Okay, virtually, I don't think any of the English translations really bring this out. But if you look at the very first verse and the very first few words of Exodus, in the Hebrew, the very first word is and. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. Okay, now, if you're like me, when you were in high school, you had an English teacher that said, you don't ever begin a sentence with the word and. And you certainly don't ever begin a chapter of a, of a book with the word and. And you would never begin a book, an entire book, with the word and. And yet, this, this book begins with and because this is a story that we're picking up very much in the middle of things and comes from what came right before it in the entire book of Genesis. This is a direct continuation of the story of Genesis. We're picking up in the middle. Uh, Genesis, if you're familiar with that book, you know, of course, it begins with the the creation of the world and all things cosmic, but it quickly becomes the story of God's work in the life of one particular man and all his descendants. This man, Abraham, who lives in uh, a pagan land, and out of nowhere, God comes to him and says, Abraham, I'm making a covenant with you. I'm building a relationship with you that you were not looking for. And I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky, as numerous as the sand of the seashore. And I'm going to bring you into the land of Canaan, and I'm going to give it to you and your descendants. So Genesis is about God's coming into the human story to specifically the person of Abraham in order to bless him and his family and ultimately to use that very promise and that very person to bless the entire world—it starts with Abraham. So most of Genesis is about God's promise coming to Abraham and Abraham's son Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob. is the promise is passed from one generation to the next, and then right near the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob has twelve sons. One of him is named Joseph. Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers, and he ends up in Egypt in prison. Until God raises him to prominence, and he becomes the number two person over all of Egypt, the number two man right next to Pharaoh, the second most powerful man in Egypt. And he knows that a famine is coming in the land of Canaan, so he calls his brothers to come and to live in Egypt where they will be provided for and be safe. And so Genesis ends with, in one sense, God's promise beginning to be fulfilled. God's people are growing, they're becoming becoming numerous, they're flourishing, but they're in the wrong place, because they're now in Egypt, God's brought them there. And you finish Genesis thinking about the promises of Abraham, thinking, why are they there? Well, that's where Exodus picks up. And these are the sons. And this is a direct quote, actually, from uh, Genesis 46, verse 8, where, again, we see the list of Jacob's sons. It picks up here, and we hear the next part of the story of what is God going to do in order to fulfill his promise to his people? How is he going to take care of them? And we find this remarkable thing has happened. 400 years have passed, and God's people have fallen into slavery. But as we're going to see over the course of this series, God brings his people from slavery to freedom. And this story of the Exodus is the central story of deliverance in all of the Old Testament. You see it referred to time and again throughout the Old Testament as the people of God look back to their forming as a nation as God brought them from slavery to freedom and brought them out of Egypt, ultimately back into the land of Canaan and established them as a people. This is their story. The Exodus stamp is over all of the Old Testament. And this was also the story of the first Christians when they looked back and saw God's work in the Old Testament of deliverance and salvation. It was their story. And so I'm just offering up to us this morning that it is also our story. For those of us who follow Jesus, Exodus is our story as well, because this is our God who comes and brings deliverance to his people. Let me ask you a question. How many of you ever feel a little bit iffy about the Old Testament? You know, you go back and read the Old Testament, and it feels uh, even more foreign than the New Testament, and even more removed, and maybe God feels even that much more confusing to you in the Old Testament than he does in the New Uh, Back in the second century AD in Rome, there was a a teacher who came to prominence, prominence named Marcion, and Marcion began to teach that there were in fact two gods in the Bible. There was a God of the Old Testament who was capricious and wrathful, indignant, but then in the New Testament we find that there's another God, the God, the Father of Jesus, the God of mercy and grace and love. And the God of the New Testament, in fact, is morally superior to this Old Testament God capricious and wrathful uh tertullian one of the church fathers wrote a five volume work called against marcion to combat this early heresy now maybe many of us wouldn't be so bold as to say well there's this mean old testament god and this gracious new testament god and they're different people Um, maybe you just tend to read the bible and think god's slightly on the bipolar side right uh the same God, but very different pictures. Maybe you felt this when you read the Old Testament. You look and see God just feels so foreign there. In fact, as some have said, you know, you just, we read about God's wrath and his anger. And it's just such relief to come to the New Testament and hear about his love. Um, maybe that feels, it feels that way for us. And if that's the case, I've got good news for us. There is only one God. And he is the God of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is one God, and this is one unified story, and it is our story. We're going to see that Exodus has a lot to teach us about our God, that he is holy, and that he's powerful, that he hates sin, and that he has always, always, he has always been moving towards his people in grace and mercy and love. God of mercy and love has his stamp all over the Old Testament, just as he does the New. And we're going to see that here in the book of Exodus. That The God of the, the Old Testament of Exodus is very much the God of grace and mercy, as is the God of the New Testament. Now, you might be just saying that. You might not believe that yet. Uh, we'll come and see over these next number of weeks. As we see the God of Exodus revealed for us in his word. Now, for me, my, my own appreciation for the Old Testament really didn't come until I went to seminary and had some classes that really opened up the Old Testament for me, and I began to love this part of God's Word. So much so, I, I, as I was thinking about this, I sent an email to one of my professors this week just to say thank you, and thanks for the way that experience opened my eyes to so much. Um, and for, for many of us, though, maybe still our, our Bible in one sense is too light. Okay? Regardless of what you have in print in your own Bible, maybe in effect for you, it's It's still the New Testament and the Psalms. You know, that, that's That's about the extent of of where you feel comfortable foraging it in the Bible. But I want us, again, to open up our eyes to the whole Bible that God has given us. It is, after all, the Bible that Paul describes to us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 when he says this. All Scripture, and that means New Testament, but Paul was thinking Old Testament. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped, for every good work. So maybe over these next few months, as as we look at Exodus, we're going to be looking at this from now until until the end of the summer. Maybe as we look at this, the Old Testament and Exodus in particular will, will come alive for you in a way that it never has before. Maybe as you begin more and more to fall in love with our God who is revealed to us in the book of Exodus, then we more and more would begin to see this ancient text, this written thousands of years ago, in a culture very different from ours on the other side of the world, that we would see that this is the story of God's people from moving from slavery to freedom. And that, in fact, not only is it their story, that it is our story. And that we would know that more as we look at the book of Exodus. So it's a story that begins in the middle. second thing about it, and if you know anything about Exodus, you know this, it's a story of pain and slavery. Okay, we, we talked about Joseph and, and the sons of uh, Jacob coming into Egypt where they are saved. Well, Exodus, the first chapter, tells us what happens next. Look in verse 8. We see that they become victims of a changed political situation. Verse 8. Now, there arose a new king in Egypt, possibly a whole new dynasty of kings in Egypt, who who did not know Joseph. What does the Pharaoh do? He turns to his people and he says, these people are becoming too numerous, so much so that they are a threat. What if they rise up in rebellion? What if they join with our enemies? Our only solution is to keep them under our thumb, and so they begin a new policy towards the Israelites, which is to enslave them, and they become the labor force uh, for building the great building projects of Egypt. Uh, Result for them is this physical slavery, this forced labor, and it's described for us pretty graphically in verse 13 and 14. I want to read a translation from a commentator that brings it out even more clearly. Listen to this. The Egyptians forced the sons of Israel to toil more unremittingly than ever, making their lives utterly bitter with a backbreaking slavery, mixing mortar and molding bricks, and even doing every kind of field labor. In all the toil to which they forced them, the Egyptians made them work without relief. This grinding, oppressive slavery. They were under this physical. Uh, slavery, but, but maybe what, what slips by a little more unnoticed by us, one of the results was not simply this physical slavery, but also a spiritual slavery. Look at verse 14. Look at the effect that this had on them. It says that it made their lives bitter. It made their lives bitter. This thing that was on, this out, on the outside, this, this oppressive toil, didn't stay on the outside. It, it found its way into their hearts. And it began to re- redefine for them who they were, who God is, and what their lives were all about. as They became very bitter, and it became the spiritual poison to them. They lived their lives without hope, lives without any sense of the presence of their God. Because in these first two chapters, it's God's absence that seems to ring most clearly. I mean, who are the major players here? We, we hear all about the work of Pharaoh and his oppression over God's people. And in fact, in the, the passage that we read this morning, the, the only time we even get a glimpse of God is, remember this with the, the two Hebrew midwives They were told to murder the sons of Israel and they refuse because they fear God. And God honors their allegiance and grants them families. But that's the only thing we hear about God in these two chapters. 400 years of oppressive slavery and asking the question, what have we done to end up here? It seems that God is absent. And you never feel that way. Like God is simply... Absent. The life is crushing you. And you can feel your heart becoming maybe bitter uh, and hard or cynical. And maybe it's causing you to cry and cry out in your suffering or to shake your fist in rage in your suffering. Maybe you've just gotten past the point of emotional reaction altogether and you're just completely numb. A heart that keeps everything now at distance from you your friends, your spouse, if you have one, your family. And even, and maybe especially, keeps God at a distance from you. See, Exodus, we're going to see, has something to speak into our own experiences of pain and slavery and our own wrestling with the very real bitterness of life that comes our way. So it's a story of pain and slavery. But lastly, and we have to remember this, it is a story of deliverance and freedom, because in spite of the fact that we don't see God's name written much on the pages of Exodus 1 and 2, his hand is at work behind the scenes for the good of his people throughout all their hardship. Uh, when he brings his people down to Egypt, look at what he does in verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. Okay, Some of the same words are... Used here that are used in Genesis 1, where God gives the creation mandate when He looks at Adam and Eve and He says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's the language that's being recalled here. As God's people are being blessed and they're beginning to do that, He is prospering them. They're multiplying, they're growing. There is real blessing of God here. And it happens even as Pharaoh turns up the heat in their lives. Look at verse 12 as they're oppressed in slavery. What happens? But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. Even in the midst of the slavery, God blessing them and caring for them. But this Pharaoh, who is worried about the presence of Israel and plan A for him is to put them into slavery, he quickly moves into plan B as the people continue to thrive. And he says, we have to control the population of Israelites. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to kill the male children. So that's when he calls uh, the uh, Hebrew midwives and says, "When, when it's a When you're delivering a baby and it's a boy, kill him immediately. And of course, they don't obey Pharaoh's order. So ultimately, what does he do at the end of chapter 1? He tells all the people in Egypt, when the Hebrews have children, if it's a male, throw him into the Nile and drown him. This is how we're going to rescue ourselves from the threat of Israel. Two things stand against the work of Pharaoh, this work of destruction. God is working, healing and salvation even here. What happens? Well, one are simply the Hebrew midwives. Isn't it striking in a chapter where the most powerful person in Israel's life is the king of Egypt, and we don't know his name, but we know the name of these two Hebrew midwives recorded for us in Scripture, the dignity there of these two women, their names being recorded, and their small act of faithfulness and defiance against a king who would have them turn against their god. And we see them, even them, bringing rescue to their people. And then secondly, in chapter 2, the very beginning, what happens next? We see the story of Pharaoh is not the only story unfolding here. Because there are two Levites, this man and woman. Levites are the tribe that are eventually going to become the priestly tribe in Israel. And they have uh, children. One of whom uh, is a baby boy, born at this time. A boy who will ultimately be named Moses and. Pharaoh has called them to throw this child into the Nile, and what do they do instead? They build a basket. They seal it up with tar. It's interesting, this word for basket, the only other time we get this word in the Old Testament is the word for the ark in Genesis 6 through 9, something that is going to save God's people. They put Moses into this mini ark, and they set him afloat on the river that Pharaoh intends to be the river of the destruction of Israel. And what happens? Isr—excuse uh, me Pharaoh, breathing his murderous threats, doesn't account for his daughter, a woman with compassion who goes down to the river and finds this child. And who ultimately brings this child into the court of Pharaoh to be raised as one of her own sons. As Pharaoh's will is being thwarted again and again, and as God's good work of salvation is being worked out slowly and quietly, waiting to come to its full flourishing here in a few chapters. And God brings deliverance dramatically. We see the story of Moses. As I said before, this is the Old Testament story of deliverance and freedom from slavery. And we're going to see as we go through Exodus that freedom means two different things. One, it means certainly means freedom from. God's people are going to be freed from the physical slavery that they are under and their oppression by the people of Egypt. It is freedom from. But freedom is never only that we're going to see also that it is freedom to, and in this case it is freedom to, a right and restored relationship with their God. God frees them from it, from Egypt in order to bring them out and form them into a nation who will know him, who will worship him. And it's going to be a temptation to look at the first 18 chapters of Genesis as we go through and see very clearly a story of freedom, but then what happens is we get to 19 and 20? We come to Mount Sinai, and we're going to spend the second half of this series looking at the Ten Commandments. And for many of us, our our gut reaction is, well, this story was about freedom until we got here. And now it's just a story about law. What happens in the giving of the Ten Commandments? God, in his grace, frees this people from oppression in order that they might know him. And he gives them his laws, not to be the eternal and cosmic killjoy, but to reveal himself to them. Why are we not supposed to lie? Because we have a God who does not lie to us. Why are we supposed to be faithful in our marriages? Because we have a God who has placed his faithfulness on us. Why are we only to worship God? Because he is the one true God. He gives us his law as an expression of the freedom that he calls us into. It is the law that helps us to know who he is and sets parameters for life with him. He gives it to us to show us in his grace and his mercy that we are now called to be in relationship with him. He moves to us and towards us, not only in bringing us out of Egypt, but in bringing his law to us. And again, some of you don't buy that yet, and we'll see. Hang on. We're going to keep looking at the book of Exodus. And finally, though, one thing that we're always going to keep in mind as we look at the book of Exodus, as we said, this is a story that begins in the middle, and it looks back to what happened in Genesis. Well, we are, too, are a people still in the middle, but we know more of the story. Because we look back and we see in Exodus this Old Testament paradigm of God's deliverance of his people and raising up a deliverer in the person of Moses but we as Christians come to the Old Testament always seeing it through the eyes of Jesus because we see that this great story of real deliverance was in fact a foreshadowing of the greater deliverance God was going to bring us through the person not simply of a deliverer raised up from the people named Moses but from his own son our Lord Jesus Christ stepping down into human flesh becoming one of us that He might ultimately and fully and finally rescue us from all our slavery, the external oppression as well as the internal, the things that oppress us in this life as well as the sin that has a hold on our hearts. He has come to bring us the ultimate and greater freedom. And so as Christians, we always come back to this story seeing it in light of what God has given us in Jesus, the fullest and greatest picture of His redemption, His salvation, of His work of winning His people, we're going to continually come back to that. And in conclusion, let me, let me just give us a few thoughts uh, or, or questions to think about. This is uh, your lunchtime conversation or dinner tonight. We said that Exodus is a story, and in fact, it is our story. So let me just ask us this. What's the story that you are living in light of right now? And what is, what's your default story? What, what are you looking to to make sense of your life right now? Is it your family's story? good or bad, however you see it? Is it our culture's story? Is it our nation's story? Is it some version of the American dream? Maybe you're living in light of a story that goes something like this. You are, in essence, a consumer, and the value of your life is to be measured by the gadgets that you own, the car that you drive, the neighborhood that you live in, the color of your parachute. Maybe that's your narrative. Maybe that's your story. Or how about this one? Um, You are what you accomplish, And so you subtly or or not so subtly, you're always looking back and pointing to the the high school athletic trophies that are still on your shelf uh, or to your SAT scores or to the diploma that's hanging on your wall or to the list of your clubs and activities to the career that you successfully had or to your carefully manicured resume and saying, this is my story. Or are we going to live in light of God's story? because that is the one that he is telling in the pages of Exodus, a story that begins in slavery and oppression, not only physical but spiritual, that begins with the people who barely even know God's name and barely even understand his presence among them, a story that breaks into that kind of darkness and hopelessness and brings freedom and deliverance, a story of a God who brings salvation out of the very darkest of situations. That is our story. A story of a God who is present and involved who comes to us, who reaches out to us, who lifts us up, and who again makes us whole. It's a story about God's work in the world bringing a people, us, me, you, to himself. The story of a God who is holy, who is set apart, who is creator and king over all, yet who steps into the mess of history in order to pour out his love and his grace and his forgiveness on us. Brothers and sisters, this is God's story that he tells us in Exodus, the one that he invites us into, has it become your story? Has it become our story? Second question, if that one wasn't enough for you over lunch. What are you in slavery to? What's become your master? Who are you serving? What has become the center of your life? And is it our God? And along with that, are you experiencing the liberating power of God in the middle of your real life right now? in the middle of your wrestling with very real slavery right now, are you experiencing the liberating power of God? Jesus, our greater liberator, says this in John 8. So if the Son sets you free, if I set you free, then you will be free indeed. And do we know that kind of freedom in our lives, even today? Let me just give us one suggestion as we go through Exodus these next few months. Read along as as we go through Exodus. Uh, this week sometime, take a half an hour and, and, and make some time to be quiet and go back and reread the passage we looked at today and think it through and pray it through and begin to ask the questions of God, what, what do I need to see of you here and how do I need to understand myself better? Would you show me? And then you'll notice every week at the uh, end of your order of worship, we, we print the text for next week. Start reading those verses. For next week, it's the very end of chapter 2. Start reading those and thinking about them and praying them through that you might prime the pump before we come together again next week. And maybe this will become more of a rhythm for us for these next few months as we look at Exodus. Do all that you can to make this story, to see the story that is our story. We need to hear it again and again throughout our weeks. And that's my hope for us, that as we read these pages, we're going to see that this is the very same God. If we read these pages and see the great need of these people, we're going to realize that is our need as we read these pages and see God's great deliverance, we're going to see that God has come and delivered us, too, most fully and finally in Jesus, that we are a people who have been set free, and we are a people now who, to li- who are to live as people who have been set free. Let's pray. Father, we do pray, and I pray that over these next number of months that you would open up the book of Exodus to us because you are here. Would you show yourself to us? would you show us your story and make it more and more our own? Or would you show us that you speak into the very real bitterness of our lives and bring freedom and life that we find it in Jesus? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.